I want to read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 26, and we'll just be looking tonight at verses 14 through 19. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, beginning in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David, according to my gospel. Now, we talked about last week how that short sentence is packed with meaning, both talking about the deity of Christ, talking about the fact that he is a descendant of David and therefore has the right to reign as a messianic ruler, as promised in the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul is exhorting Timothy, and by extension, Timothy's those under Timothy's care, to keep remembering that, to keep mindful of that. This is the gospel for which Paul says, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, and what he's about to say is actually four statements, Two that serves an encouragement to endure despite increasing persecution, increasing suffering, and two that warn the consequences of departure, of failing to endure. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. That is, we can face even the ultimate payment of sacrifice, death, with confidence, because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Conversely, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Those who abandon Christ in a permanent way, that is, they walk away from the faith and no longer want to have anything to do with Christ, will not reign with him. They'll be denied by him as he stands before the Father. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Christ is always faithful to his own character. He will certainly save those who trust in him. And what we mean there is those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, like we sang about last night, like Paul is talking about here when he refers to the elect. And he will certainly punish those who do not believe in him. Now our passage in 14 through 19. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless, and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And thus they upset or overturn, is another way to translate that word, the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all 
able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. As we look at verses 14 through 19, the central theme of this passage is God's approved workman. God's approved workman. Verses 14 and 15 spell out the approved workman's duties. 16 through 18, the approved workman's opposition. And verse 19, the approved workman's foundation. Let's look first at the approved workman's duties in verses 14 and 15. There's a command by Paul to Timothy in verse 14 that has both a positive and a negative aspect. The positive is literally remind these things. That is, keep before your hearers, followers of Christ, these things that I've just mentioned. Keep on continually, it's a present tense imperative, keep on continually reminding the people of these things. Now certainly he's talking about the things in verses 8 through 13 that we just read about, but perhaps particularly the trustworthy saying in verses 11 through 13. Timothy was not only to be constantly remembering this for his own spiritual good and growth and understanding in the midst of persecution, but he was also to keep others mindful of this same thing for their spiritual benefit and endurance. These are core truths of what we believe. Paul wants Timothy to hold fast to them, and he wants to make sure that those under Timothy's care hold fast to them as well. And this is a process that's continued all the way down to the present day. Uh, this, my study this week and the past several weeks to prepare to teach Second Timothy has been a great exercise for me personally because I've been reminded of these things. I've been reminded, too, to stay faithful in my own walk with Christ, to be mindful of all that he's already accomplished on my behalf, and to remember that any suffering that I have to endure in this age leads ultimately to my reigning with Christ, and to also be mindful that departing from the faith leads to dire consequences. In the same way, I want all of you to be mindful of these same things for your spiritual benefit and endurance as you inevitably will walk through difficulties in this life as a believer. Remember who Christ is and all that he's done for you. Let that and the future reward of reigning with Christ motivate you to stay faithful in the present age regardless of the suffering and persecution that you endure. Van alluded to this in his prayer tonight. We live in a time where things are changing. Things are changing in our own country uh, we've, in many ways, had it easy relative to the rest of the world in being a believer. But that's, that's changing, and it's changing pretty rapidly in places. So that's the positive aspect of Timothy's duty, both to himself and to those he teaches. Now let's look at the negative. Paul says, solemnly charging or testifying before God not to wrangle about words. Now when he puts that before God in there, that's a serious thing. When you think about it, everything that we do, everywhere that we are, we are before God. We're in his presence. And a Christian is mindful of that in a way that an unbeliever certainly is not. But he's to do this before God himself. This before God makes this a particularly serious thing both for Timothy and for his hearers. Of course, those who have a ministry of the word of God carry out that ministry before God himself primarily. We're responsible to him as the one who ultimately will judge the quality of our work and the quality of our teaching. 
James tells us that we incur, indeed incur a stricter judgment as teachers. And that, again, is used... Uh, let's think, consider this. None of us likes to think about judgment. It's not a, something that is very pleasant to us, but it's something the Bible teaches, not just for unbelievers, but for believers. And the Bible teaches it as a positive motivation. The book of Ecclesiastes is all about the fact that one day we have to stand before God. And Solomon's conclusion in that book is, when all has been said and done, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the answer. At the same time, those who hear the word of God taught are, clear, are responsible for him as well. The more truth you know, the more you're accountable for. Being aware of God's continual presence and watch care over us encourages a healthy fear of the Lord. And as we know, the fear of the Lord is both the beginning and the end of wisdom. And the scripture uses that as a motivation to faithful servants, service and at the same time to avoiding sin, to staying away from evil. Now this, uh, what the NAS translates is to wrangle about words, is actually one word in the Greek, lagamakain. Another way to translate is, is don't split hairs. What's Paul talking about here? Well, let's consider what he's not saying. He's not saying that it's wrong to discuss a Bible passage. And certainly as you look at the history of the interpretation of the Bible, there's been disagreement on passages of Scripture. And the major doctrines of our faith have been hammered out by church councils through time over disagreement. The kinds of commentaries that I profit the most from are those that lay out multiple views for a particular verse and lay out the pros and cons of those views and help you understand what the argument is according to good hermeneutical principles, the rules of context, and the fact that Scripture interprets Scripture. So Paul is not saying don't do that here. He's not saying that we shouldn't have good theological discussions that help each other, help us, but those theological discussions have to be centered around the word of God. What Paul's warning against here is the danger of getting involved in a theological discussion which is speculative, theoretical, and in the end, just a lot of hot air expressed in words. He's saying don't do that. Instead, focus on the truths of the gospel, the truths of the Christian faith as revealed in God's word. We don't have a lot of content here on all that these false teachers were teaching in this context, but we do have some. In fact, there's a passage in Paul's first letter to Timothy, when Timothy is still in Ephesus, and he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men, these were men within the church, not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, he contrasts what those men were doing with his own ministry. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. That's the kind of discussion that Paul is charging Timothy to make sure it doesn't happen in Ephesus. Why? 
Why does Timothy need to solemnly charge them not to wrangle about words? Well, first, Paul says it's useless. It doesn't accomplish anything. It does not edify. That means it's not doing exactly what good instruction is supposed to do, according to the scriptures. We just read from 1 Timothy that the goal of Paul's instruction was love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This word wrangling that was going on was not accomplishing any of that. And there's a couple of other instances that we can look at. In the midst of the controversy about speaking in tongues in Corinth, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Notice as I read these verses, I'm going to read 1 through 5 out of 1 Corinthians 14. Notice how often the word edify or edification appears in this passage. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. It wasn't doing any good for the people to be able to stand up and exhibit this gift of tongues if there was nobody there to interpret the message. It looked impressive. It was supernatural, but it wasn't helping anybody else. Verse 12 of chapter 14 says, So also you, since you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. This word wrangling that was going on at Ephesus was not accomplishing that. In fact, it was doing just the opposite. Paul says it was leading to the ruin of the hearers. The Greek word here is catastrophe. That sounds familiar. It's the word from which we get our English word catastrophe. It carries the basic idea of being overturned or overthrown. And the one other instance where it appears in the New Testament is instructive. 2 Peter 2.6 Second Peter, of course, also is a letter that's having to deal with false teaching and the destructive influence of false teachers within the church. It says this. If he, that is God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, to catastrophe, by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. So Paul's using a word here that's very strong. Wrangling. This word wrangling was tearing people down instead of building them up in truth. It was bringing disaster instead of edification. It was overturning or destroying the faith of some who were being led astray by it. Verse 15 goes on to exhort Timothy to further responsibilities as God's approved workman. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. The idea there is after testing, you've come forth approved. As a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Now the picture here is of a workman or a craftsman who's done his job in such a way that he can present it to his master without shame or embarrassment. And I think as we look at this verse, there's three things that we can use to kind of analyze it. First is the manner of the workman. Secondly is the master of the workman. And thirdly is the material of the workman. The manner of the approved workman, the manner in which Timothy and all ministers of God's word are to conduct their ministry is with diligence. 
That's an easy word for us to understand. The idea is of giving maximum effort to accomplish something. In this context, it's the ministry of the gospel giving maximum effort. Maximum effort to know what the word of God says through his own careful study, to put that into practice in his own life, and then to clearly communicate it to others, both by his oral instruction and by the example of his life. It's a good summary of a guy who did this in the Old Testament. It's interesting to read what Ezra 7.10 says to see these principles. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, that was to know what it said, and to practice it, that was to be a good example to others, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. It needs to be in that order. To do all these things, and to do them well, takes diligent work, just as any other craft does. So that's what Paul is exhorting Timothy to do, to give maximum effort to know and practice the work of God. Who then is the master of the approved workman? Whose approval does he seek? It's certainly not the approval of men, because oftentimes he won't get that. No, he does it for God's approval. He does it with a view toward hearing the Lord say, in the end, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Paul gives us some good examples of this from his own ministry. Who, and you think about this, Paul's ministry, like Christ's, was often rejected. It was often strongly opposed. He writes to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. To the Thessalonians, he writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, But just as we, and he's putting himself in the same roof with Timothy and Silas, who were with him as he writes this letter, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. Such teachers of God's word can minister without shame in this life and look forward to God's approval when they stand before the famous seat of Christ. So the manner in which the minister of the gospel works is diligence. His master is God, and his material is the word of truth. He's called not to quibble about words, but to rightly and effectively handle that word of truth. Now, sometimes that phrase is used in the New Testament, and it's just talking about the gospel, that message, the essentials that Paul is talking about in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Other times, it's used to the whole counsel of God, for example, when Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. And I think that's the better way to see this. might be the easy way out for me is having to choose because certainly that includes the gospel. But I think what Paul is telling Timothy here, and by extension to all ministers of God, that they have to handle the whole counsel of God well. You know, to best appreciate and understand the gospel itself, you need to understand all the background that leads up to the gospel as it's presented in the New Testament. So it's the whole of God's truth that must be studied and taught by the approved workman. Hebert puts it this way, the approved minister presents the eternal truths of the gospel with fidelity. He presses them on the consciences of men and he refuses to resort to tortuous and interpretations of God's word. He recognizes the proper divisions of God's revelation and handles it accordingly. 
So in verses 14 and 15, Paul's charged Timothy with particular duties as God's approved workman. Now in verses 16 through 18, he warns Timothy about the opponents that he's going to face as he carries out that role and what he needs to look out for. Let's look now at verse 16. It says literally, but avoid the worldly empty chatterers. These are substantives in the Greek. And uh, I just want to give a little bit of an illustration on what a substantive is. Basically, taking an adjective and turning it into a noun. So you could say if somebody had a pack of M&Ms, give me one of those red M&Ms. And that would be using red as an adjective. But if you say, give me a red, they would understand that you want a red M&M, but that red then becomes the noun. So the emphasis here is upon the people who do this kind of talk and of avoiding them. Of course, you can't separate it from the talk itself, but that's the way the Greek represents it. Paul had used this same warning in his first letter to Timothy, again, back in chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. It's, it's been very uh, instructive to me as I've worked through 2 Timothy how similar the instruction there is both to 1 Timothy and to Titus. And that makes sense because both of these guys were Paul's co-workers. We group these together as the pastoral epistles. But there's so many similarities both in what they're to do as teachers of God's word, uh, qualifications for elders are in both letters, and also what they're to avoid uh, by way of false teachers and error. So falling back again to 1 Timothy, we look in chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. It says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. It sounds exactly what we're looking at tonight, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul had also warned Titus along the same line in Titus chapter 3, verse 9. But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, we're not given a lot of detail right here about what all this worldly empty chatter was made up of. But as I said before, we can be sure that these were human ideas, They were speculations that opposed God. They were things that were drawn. The source was outside of the word of God. And they were having disastrous consequences upon the people that were being misled by them. Timothy needs to avoid such people because of where they lead. The last part of verse 16 and the first part of 17 say this. For they will proceed toward more ungodliness, and their talk will literally like gangrene, have pasture, is what it says. So the idea here, it's a very vivid word picture of cows just in a pasture and eating in all directions. Gangrene, of course, is a disease. It's much like cancer in that it grows very rapidly and spreads to other parts of the body through the tissues. You're probably familiar with gangrene from war movies. It can lead to death. And the way that normally you stop it is to amputate. So in the same way, these worldly, empty, chattering ones were spreading false, teacher, false teaching, and it was having devastating consequences on the body. This is right in line with Paul's earlier admonitions to Timothy to speak words fitting for sound doctrine and to avoid false teachers and their babblings at all costs. Now Paul goes on here to name names, and he does get a little specific as to what was being taught. 
He says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, Philetus, this is the only time he's mentioned in the New Testament, so we don't know much more about him. But Hymenaeus is a guy that was mentioned again back in 1 Timothy. He was there at Ephesus. Let's look there, 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20. His mention there is not a favorable one. This I com- this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I, this is Paul himself talking now, I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus had evidently been at Ephesus for some time. He had been troubling the church there for some time. And Paul finally took the action of excommunicating him from the church. But that hadn't stopped him from setting up shops somewhere in the area and continuing to propagate his false teaching. Paul describes both of these men as having gone astray from the truth. These were not secondary doctrinal matters that they were having disagreements about. These men were false teachers. They were missing the mark. They were no longer holding to cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. Paul goes on to describe the nature of one of those errors. They were saying that the resurrection had already taken place. Now, this is not the first time that Paul's had to deal with this. Do you remember the other place? It's in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he gives a very detailed description there. Remember, in the last part of 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to questions that have been sent to him via letter. And one of those questions had to do with the resurrection of the dead. He responds to that in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just read verses 12 through 17. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. That's how fundamental the resurrection of Christ is to the Christian faith. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses of God. Why? Because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, get this now, strong language. Your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Strong language, but that's the gravity of this error. To deny or distort the truth about the resurrection is to deny and distort the heart of the gospel. And we don't know exactly what it means when it says that they were claiming the resurrection had already taken place. I think there's a good argument to be made for the fact that they were saying that the spiritual resurrection that happens when you receive Christ is all that there is that there is no future bodily resurrection. And you could see where that would fit right in line with Greek philosophy and with the early forms of Gnosticism. Gnostics believed that everything that had to do with the body or material things was inherently evil. It's interesting. When we turn back to Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching there on Mars Hill. He's confronting those pagans in their idolatrous worship, and he's proclaiming Christ to them, It's interesting to see what their response was. Acts 17, beginning in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. 
because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. They began to sneer because that idea was abhorrent to to them. To the Greeks and to those who held to Gnosticism, a soul reached its highest level when it was freed from the prison of the body. Consequently, what one did in the body really didn't matter because eventually the soul and the body were going to be separated. And you can imagine if that's the way that you're thinking, it's going to lead to all kinds of licentious living and sexual immorality. And, of course, that was what was going on in Corinth. Hymenaeus and Philetus were teaching this, and the result was that they were overturning the faith of those that listened to them. That's what false teaching can do. It can lure away even those who have made a profession of faith in Christ and take them away from the faith. Second Peter gives a strong denunciation of false teachers and talks about the condemnation that they not only bring upon themselves, but upon all, but also those that end up following their way. I want to read this, Second uh, Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. It's a description of these false teachers. It's also uh, the same kind of language that's used in Jude. These are springs without water. They're mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. That's God's judgment. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity that they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom. And you can see what the tact was here. If you, basically, if you say that the body doesn't matter, then you're free to do whatever you want to. Promising them freedom while they, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by, what, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Now here's the punchline in verses 20 and 21. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. You get that? He's saying it would have been better for them not to have known the gospel than to known it, have known it, and turned away from it. That's what he says in verse 21. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. That's why Paul issues these warnings about these men and why there are so many similar warnings against false teaching in the New Testament as a whole. Now, there's two possible responses to these warnings, right? One, the people could hear them, they could heed them, they could recognize the false teaching that was going on, and they could turn to the truth and turn to people like Paul and Timothy They were teaching the truth. Or they could ignore the warning, continue to follow the teaching of the false teachers, and be led away from the faith. And someone who does that demonstrates that they never were saved in the first place. We've seen the approved workman's duties. We've seen the opponents and the opposition that he'll face. Let's look finally at the approved workman's foundation in verse 19. That verse says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now you note the nevertheless that begins this verse. That means it's a strong word of contrast. And the flow of thought here is, despite the presence of the false teachers within the church, 
despite the destructive influence that they can have, God's plan is not thwarted. God is still building his church. In fact, Paul's moving here to the metaphor of a building. And the the foundation of the church as a building is the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as his cornerstone. Paul is one of those apostles. And his teaching, along with the other apostolic doctrine, along with the early New Testament prophets before the word of God was completely canonized, are the foundation of the church. That foundation is rock solid and unshakable. Paul wants Timothy to know that. He wants us to know that. Now, from the human point of view, the church may at times look like it's on the verge of extinction, that it's being overpowered by Satan and the world system that he leads, and by the false teachers who infiltrate it as Satan's agents. Certainly, it would have looked that way in Paul's day. After all, he himself is about to be executed. Now, he knows that the gospel is continuing to bear fruit in different parts of the Roman Empire, but he also knows that he's about to die, that the attitude of the Roman Empire has changed dramatically toward Christianity in general, that other apostles, the leaders of this new way called Christianity, were being arrested and executed. It didn't, it didn't look like the church was turning the world upside down in that sense. They weren't having a lot of influence across the Roman Empire as a whole. I think it looks that way today. I mean, you consider the church and our country as to where we stand now in history. Consider the fact that our own country was established on a Christian foundation. We were given, as we celebrate this weekend, great freedom for Christians to exercise their faith, to worship without fear of persecution for the most part, without opposition as we do here every Sunday. And yet we look at the situation in our country apart from what the divine revelation of the Bible says, and we wonder. I mean, if we are to believe what we hear in the news and the polls, We are at a time in our own country where more than 50% of the people don't even believe in God, much less Jesus Christ. We have many churches in our country that don't teach the word of God, and and oftentimes churches in name only. We have the worst kind of sexual immorality that's becoming more and more mainstreamed. And our country, among all the countries of the world, and particularly the developed countries, has one of the highest murder rates there is. We kill unborn babies. That does not appear as if the church is thriving. It certainly doesn't appear as if the church is overtaking society. Paul reminds us that despite all of this, the foundation has not changed. God has not changed. His plan has not changed. And he's continuing to faithfully build his church. Now, Paul mentions a seal here in association with the foundation. That's a term that refers to ownership, security, and authenticity. The verb form is the same one that we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, when it speaks about our being sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's a mark. It's a mark of God's ownership of his own. It's a mark of security for those that belong to God, and it's a guarantee of their genuineness. In this passage, in 2 Timothy 2, this seal can be thought of as having two sides, the divine side and the human side. And Paul uses two sayings here, both of which seem to have their background in Numbers 16 
and both of which were well-known sayings in the early church. In my Bible, in NAS, they put them in quotations, and I think this was something that would have been well-known to Paul's audience. Let's look first at the divine side. The Lord knows those who are his. Now, if we look, why don't you turn with me back to Numbers chapter 16. There, in Numbers, is the story of the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram against Moses and Aaron as God's appointed leaders for the nation of Israel. And these men, these rebels, were part of the nation of Israel. They were part of the covenant people of God with all of her promises. Korah was even of the tribe of Levi, who ministered in the temple. And yet they rebelled against God and against Moses and Aaron. Let's look at Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone far enough. These guys are talking to Moses, God's own man. You've gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, and here's the illusion upon which Paul is drawing, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Now, we'll read the rest of the story in a little bit. You're familiar with it. God brings a supernatural judgment against these men. They were definitely not his, and God judged them accordingly. In a similar way, as we look at this passage in 2 Timothy 2, the false teachers in Timothy's days, day are not God's either. They don't belong to him. But God will deal with them and protect his own. The Lord knows his own. His knowledge of his own is complete and absolute. It's from the foundation of the world and stretches to eternity future. God watches over his own. He protects them from the enemy. He allows testing their lives to strengthen their faith. He lovingly disciplines them when they need it. All those that God has given to Christ will come to him and no one can snatch them out of his hand. No one can bring a charge against God's elect because no one is greater than God. God is the one who began the good work within them. He will continue it to the completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He can be completely relied upon to distinguish between those who are truly his and those that are not. What about the human side, the other side of this seal? What we're really saying here is the human responsibility side of the equation. And that is, let everyone who names the name of the Lord, that is, all those who know Christ, abstain from wickedness. You might think, well, if God is the one who does all that that I just described, if he's the one that accomplishes salvation from the beginning to the end, then I don't need to do anything. I can just trust God. He's already done it all. Well, that's wrong. And the Bible is very clear that we have a responsibility as believers in Christ to abstain from wickedness and pursue holiness. The very fact that there are commands to us in Scripture should make that obvious. 
And we'll look at some of those that appear in the New Testament. But let's stay here in number 16 and read the rest of this story, picking up in verse 25. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abraham with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, what? Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Get back. Stay away from them. Touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah and Dathan, Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. Moses said, Look, I'm not the one that appointed me to be leader of the nation of Israel. God did that. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol. Then you'll understand that these men have spurned the Lord. They've not just rebelled against Moses. They spurned the Lord. It came about as he finished speaking all these words that the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. God judged these men, and he warned those, he warned the others that were part of the nation of Israel to get back away from them so that they wouldn't be caught up in that judgment. Let's look at a sampling of New Testament commands that say the same kind of thing that Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy. Hebrews 12:14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Peter 2:11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 and 22, But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not my presence only, but now much more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the human responsibility side. It's to pursue sanctification. And just as divine sovereignty and human responsibility work hand in hand, so do these two statements that Paul is making here. Those who are truly the Lord's will make that known. It will be evident in their lives by the way that they forsake wickedness. I've quoted Hebert a lot. I want to finish tonight with another quote from him about these two sayings. To be valid, the two legends on the seal cannot be separated. The first emphasizes the objective fact of God's superintending knowledge of his own. The second stresses the need for man's holiness. The first is dated to eternity past. The second regulates the believer's present conduct. The first assures the security of the church. The second requires its purity. The first is a truth to be believed. The second is a demand to be obeyed. Let's pray together.
Father, we do praise you and thank you that salvation is a work that you accomplish. It's something that you've determined from the foundation of the world. It's something that cannot be thwarted, not even against, not even Satan himself can overcome this plan that you've accomplished. And yet we recognize that the scripture is just as clear that it is a battle, that Satan does have his agents, that he, they infiltrate the church in the manner of false teaching, and that we have to understand and know truth in order to be able to discern and stay away from false teaching. We recognize that that's what Paul is commanding not just Timothy, but us to do as well. And we recognize that you are going to accomplish your purpose, that you know your own, that you call them by name, they hear your voice, and that you preserve them to the very end. But we recognize, too, that we have a responsibility as your children to abstain from wickedness, to endure under persecution, to be faithful to you unto the end. I just pray we recognize that it's by your spirit that we can do that, and it's by your word that sanctifies us in truth that we can do it. And I just thank you that you have made that known to us and that we... You grow us in our understanding according to your word. Thank you for the time that we've had together tonight, Father. I pray that you just continue to teach us as we walk through the remainder of this letter together in the weeks to come. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.